Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Fun and free passive income sources. Passive income, am I right? Don't we all dream to earn as much as possible with minimum output? Let's get the guilt, if there is any, out of the way. We all desire money. For one thing or another. And there is nothing wrong with that. But we also desire money without actively working don't see anything wrong with that either. And isn't that what passive income is for, if you are new to passive income, then let me put it simply. It's having a streams of income. In which you put your time, effort, and capital to live off long term without working. The easiest example I can give is you create a YouTube video if people are watching it you are making money off of it. Simple right, well, it is, and it isn't. Like anything, it needs your constant time and attention for a certain period but then you can leave it be let it do its thing. Which is to get you passive cash and it is what I called getting maximum output from minimum input. But again, reaching that point needs investment. Investment of your time, effort, hard work, and yes, could be some money. There are multiple ways for one to earn passive income and there isn't anything in the world that can stop you if you really want it. Do you want money with minimum effort? Good. Set that goal straight because I have some interesting ways to do that with minimum money investment. Photography, that's right. How many random pictures do you take in a day? Sky, flower, food, and whatnot. Why not earn some cash off it on the side? Adjust your camera settings, fix the light, and take a good quality picture. Add some filters and enhancements and bam you are ready to set off your first passive income stream. Create an account on stock image sites like, Getty Images, Shutterstock, Almery, upload your photography. Set a price and you are good to go. Print on demand, in my opinion one of the best ways to earn passive cash. It does require a lot of time and effort but it's so worth it in the end. Yes, you would need some skills for that. You will need to learn. You will require to give it a good time. But it will be worth it, so, what do we do in the print-on-demand business? We create a shop and design products. The POD companies take care of everything. The manufacturing, the shipping, and payments. Some of them even the marketing. And we enjoy our artist margin. Yes, you will need to learn graphic designing for it, but you can always hire people if you have the money, the steps are simple. Create your free stores on sites like, Redbubble, Teespring, Spreadshirt, TeePublic, set up your store. Upload the design on every product you like. They have t-shirts, pants, hoodies, mugs, phone cases, pillowcases, and whatnot. Adjust them using their drag and drop tool. Set your price and let them sell, tip. To increase your sales you can bring your own traffic to your store by sharing your products on your social media. Amazon KDP, anything you do with Amazon is a win all around. The world's largest online marketplace with billions of visitors every day filling their carts with random things, 
if you can sell your product there you better do that. Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing is a free platform for publishing books and more. You can sell books, journals, notebooks, coloring books, puzzle books, game books etc. If you are already doing print on demand or graphic designing, it's a cherry on top. If not it's still one of the best ways to kickstart a passive income. You can use free tools like Canva to design the covers of your books and just sell simple notebooks or you can download free Amazon tools to create other types of low content books mentioned above. If I must recommend one of the streams to invest yourself in that would hands down be Amazon KDP. Yes. Pinterest Affiliate Marketing The gist of affiliate marketing is simple. You take a product, market it and get a commission off each purchase. But that does require a social presence to get the product to people. The conventional way is to write posts about it. But if you are not no problem. Pinterest has you coved. Pinterest has more than 500 million traffic rates with the majority of them being women with constantly scrolling through pins. That is your audience. Now you need to find the product. And just create a cute pin on it and upload it on Pinterest using your affiliate link. Don't know how to create pins. No problem I got you covered. Got to, canva.com, create an account, create a pin using their free templates by drag and drop, download the pin and upload it on Pinterest with your referral or affiliate link. You can get affiliate products easily by creating an account on, Amazon Associate Program, Clickbank, CJ Affiliate, YouTube and TikTok, we know it is a game of luck. Sometimes one video could bring you a million and sometimes a hundred just a little. But when the blob click let it work. If you think your idea is good, then take the risk. Make a video and upload it on YouTube or TikTok. Who knows how much income that would bring in years. Maybe zero. Or maybe millions. The odds, I know. Create and sell online course. It does sound like a lot of work but it's one-time work. You can create a course on any of the topics you think you are good at and sell in it on multiple sites like, Udemy, Skillshare, Masterclass, nothing in the world is free. If you desire financial independence you must work for it. Sooner or later. So why not sooner and why not in passive streams that could bring you financial freedom in long term? You could be retired at 30 and live your life of passive sources if you put your time and effort now, it will take time. It will take effort but when it's out there, your product, it's out there and you have no idea when and how much you will be benefiting from it. I know I like that odds. Do you? The food we eat is set to become the latest front in the culture wars. We are what we eat, as the saying goes. That may be an exaggeration but there's no question food matters, to our health, to farmers and producers, and certainly, to the planet. COVID-19 demonstrated the importance of a healthy diet, and the government responded with a raft of anti-obesity measures. Marcus Rashford's brilliant campaign drew attention to food poverty in the UK, while the HGV driver crisis is a stark reminder of the fragility of our food supply.
but for a long time, we have avoided that third, planetary point. It is high time we consider what a healthy, sustainable diet looks like. With the UK aiming to reach net zero by 2050, the conversation has at last begun. Henry Dimbleby's recent national food strategy was clear that agriculture is a major contributor to emissions, while a recent report from the Climate Change Committee recommended we reduce our consumption of high-carbon meat and dairy products by 20% by 2030. Participation in veganuary has soared, with rising numbers of flexitarians and an end to any stigma associated with vegetarian and vegan food. Even the hairy bikers have gone meat-free. While we await the government's response to Dimbleby's strategy, examine new trade deals and prepare for COP26, we can expect increased public and political focus on how we transform our food system from being a carbon emitter to a carbon sink. For the climate conscious, the next step might be going plant-based. This shouldn't be controversial, yet there is a risk that more sustainable diets will become the new front line in the culture wars with livestock farmers pitted against climate activists, or new green farming policies seen as detrimental to British farming. That's because dietary change is a debate that divides along party and social lines. As research by strategic consultancy Lexington shows, nearly half of conservative voters never swap out meat or fish, and they are disproportionately opposed to a meat tax. You are more likely to remain a meat-eater if you backed leave, are male or live outside London. Meanwhile, 59% of conservative voters don't think plant-based products should use the language of meat, compared with just a third of Labour voters. A third of under-24s back a meat tax compared with just 15% of pensioners. There are clear reasons for this. Livestock farming is a key element of British agriculture. Farmers, many in conservative-leaning regions, are naturally anxious over threats to their livelihood, with climate issues coming alongside fears over the impact of Brexit on exports, and new trade deals and farm payment schemes. Equally, the food we eat stirs strong emotions. For some, not eating meat is framed as a moral decision, meaning that it can be hard to have an objective conversation. As Lexington's research finds, for some on the left or the right there is value in making veganism a wedge issue, and stirring the proverbial, vegetable, pot. In the EU, farmers have been fighting back, with bitter battles over the labeling of coconut yogurt, oat-based milk and vegetarian burgers. Will our newfound Brexit freedoms will see us reconsider those labels? How can we avoid a similar us versus them attitude as the focus intensifies on sustainable agriculture? What does a just transition to net zero for farmers look like? The government will need rapidly to find answers to these questions if we are to achieve net zero by 2050. Ultimately, this is not black and white. It's natural that some in the farming sector will raise concerns about seeing their consumer bases' diets shifting, while others will want to advocate that we all go plant-based. But it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. There is a big difference between encouraging less intensive livestock farming and expecting everyone to go plant-based. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts.
Stay tuned. Advocates of dietary change need to acknowledge sustainable meat production and support a hybrid diet approach. Plant-based producers need to do more to substantiate their claims once their full carbon footprint has been calculated. And we need public education as to what constitutes a healthy, sustainable diet, to incentivize behavior change and empower consumers to make informed choices. A polarized debate is not helpful, either in supporting the growth of sustainable farming or encouraging consumers to consider sustainability when making their dinner. We need a balanced conversation to make the changes required to protect people and the planet. It's spider season here's what that means for arachnophobes like me, when I say I'm arachnophobic, I don't just mean I jump when I see a spider in the bathtub, or that I have to watch as someone else covers it with a glass and carries it outside. I mean that seeing a spider gives me a visceral, physical reaction that I've yet to experience from any other stimulus. I lose all inhibitions any regular social behavior completely deserts me in the interest of getting away from the spider as quick as possible. My whole body will shake long after the spider's gone, I'll keep swallowing down the nausea for the rest of the day. Even writing this now, it makes me wince to write the word spider, my stomach contracts just seeing the word on the page, my rachnophobia has long been one of my defining features, and this time of year. It actively dominates my life. Early autumn is spider season the time when we can expect to find large house spiders crawling their way across our carpets, one. As possible. My whole body will shake long after the spider's gone, I'll keep swallowing down the nausea for the rest of the day. Even writing this now, it makes me wince to write the word spider, my stomach contracts just seeing the word on the page, my rachnophobia has long been one of my defining features and this time of year, it actively dominates my life. Early autumn is spider season the time when we can expect to find large house spiders crawling their way across our carpets, unexpectedly running out from under the sofa or lurking in the sink and as a severe arachnophobe, the thought takes up permanent residence in my brain all the time I'm in my house, during spider season, I'll look over my shoulder when I'm washing up scanning the floor around me and feeling prickles on my spine akin to eight legs traversing my body. I'll turn the bathroom light on and hover in the doorway while my eyes comb the bath, the sink, the floor around the loo. I'll wait till the last possible second each night to take out my contact lenses because I don't like the idea of my surroundings being blurred, I need to be able to see every stark detail of what's around me all the time. It's like being in a slightly muted fight or flight mode that never stops except my only response to the threat I'm poised and ready for will always be flight. Several nights a week, my dreams become populated by spiders, tangles of legs make their way up and down my synapse. Until I'm jerked awake, heart pounding, just last week, there was, according to my housemate, an enormous spider in my kitchen. We were chatting and then her eyes focused on a spot on the floor. Oh, my God she said, as her eyes widened and her body stiffened, but I was already halfway out of the door, because I've become highly attuned to the way people tend to respond to seeing a spider in their space. I knew what she was about to say, and I couldn't stay in the room long enough to hear. It. I'd only moved in a few days previously, and I felt cripplingly embarrassed even as I dashed upstairs. I knew how overdramatic I must have looked. But I couldn't even be in the room while she got rid of it, let alone help. 
She was incredibly understanding about it and sensitive to my fear, but as I hovered on the landing I felt feelings of frustration mounting. Frustration that there's a time of year, every year when I'll regularly be hovering on the landing, frustrated that I can't stand. Firm in the kitchen instead, holding the window open as my housemate deposits the spider outside, of course, that's not how phobias work. If anyone else told me that they were feeling frustrated with themselves for having a phobia, I'd tell them that they need to practice self-kindness. I'd say that frustration is ridiculous and unwarranted, that irrational fears are out of our control. My phobia is certainly out of my control I know because I've tried. I had hypnotherapy years ago that didn't work but I'm not sure that was the hypnotherapist's fault. I'd hoped that three short sessions would leave me totally arachnophobia-free, but I suspect my phobia is so deeply entrenched in the core of my psyche that it's going to take many dedicated hours to tease out some coping strategies that really work, but conversely, despite all the phobic associations that spider season holds for me, it's also my favorite time of year. Spiders very much aside, I love everything about autumn. I love the crisp clean smell of wood smoke that lingers in the air, I love watching the trees change, I love going for long walks surrounded by piles of orange leaves, before heading to a pub for a fireside mulled wine or straight home to curl up on the sofa with enormous mugs of tea. I love my best friends and I pouring our hearts out to each other as the sun sets over golden canopies of leaves and the world hunkers down for another year. It's these things that I repeat to myself when the mental glass containing my arachnophobia teeters on its precipice and threatens to spill over into every aspect of my life. It's spider season, but it's also my favorite season. Arachnophobia hasn't yet succeeded in sapping the delight out of autumn for me, and I don't plan to let it. Spiders may be more common at this time of year but so are the pinpoints of joy. Whipped into line inside the cabinet meeting that crushed Tory tax rise rebellion. Just three cabinet ministers challenged Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak over their manifesto breaking tax rise on Tuesday, as the threat of a frontbench rebellion collapsed. The Prime Minister is preparing to push ahead with a snap Commons vote on Wednesday on his plan to increase national insurance contributions by 1.25 percentage points to fund social care reform and channel cash into the NHS. On Tuesday, government whips were phoning backbench Tory MPs to tell them that they considered the division to be a confidence vote on Mr Johnson's administration, in a bid to cap the number of abstentions. There was talk of 10 rebel MPs signing a letter to the Prime Minister with questions about the plans, although it was not clear whether the letter will actually be sent. The prospect of an imminent reshuffle loomed large, as Mr Johnson declined three times to rule out the idea at a televised number 10 press conference. He insisted that the briefing setting out details of the tax rise was not the time to discuss more political matters. Separately, Tory MPs have been ordered to attend the Commons on Thursday on a three-line whip, prompting speculation that a frontbench shake-up could start within 24 hours, although government sources played down the idea. Conservatives opined that an alternative motive for demanding their presence on the parliamentary estate could be a vote on extending the Covid legislation that underpins lockdown powers, a move that would spark anger among Tory sceptics. Government insiders suggested this was also unlikely. At the first full in-person cabinet meeting for almost 18 months on Tuesday morning, Liz Truss, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lord Frost led the charge in raising concerns about the proposals, according to sources. In a bid to counter any opposition, 
the Chancellor issued a dressing down to colleagues questioning the plan to raise taxes to fund the health and social care package. I am genuinely shocked if anyone thinks the answer to the question is more borrowing Mr Sunak said, according to one of those present. The source insisted that the exchange did not amount to a ding-dong, however, and that overall the tone of the meeting was upbeat. Other cabinet ministers who had been tipped as potential opponents of the plan including Quasi Quarten, the business secretary, Preeti Patel, the home secretary and Robert Buckland, the justice secretary did not speak out against it. Ms Truss, the international trade secretary, is understood to have voiced skepticism about whether a tax rise was the best way to pay for the policy, given the brightening economic outlook. She is said by colleagues to be opposed to any tax rises, although she supports social care reform. At a drinks party she hosted for MPs on Monday night, she is said to have called for a pause to see how well the economy recovers after the pandemic before hiking taxes. Mr Rees-Mogg, the leader of the Commons, and Lord Frost, the Cabinet Office Minister, are also said to have expressed skepticism at the Cabinet meeting about tax rises. At the weekend, Mr Rees-Mogg used a newspaper column to quote George H.W. Bush, the former US President, saying read my lips no new taxes shortly before breaking the vow and then losing the 1992 presidential election. The MP remarked, voters remembered these words after President Bush had forgotten them. However, he sat in a prominent position near Mr Johnson throughout his statement at the dispatch box, and insisted to colleagues that he remains a staunch loyalist to the Prime Minister. Both Ms Truss and Mr Rees-Mogg are understood to have told friends they will back the plan and vote with the government on Wednesday crushing the prospect of any immediate cabinet rebellion. As a peer, Lord Frost will not have to vote on the plan until a later date. Conservative MPs are expecting as few as between 6 and 12 Tory MPs will vote against it in the Commons. One MP said Mr Johnson would have to do some serious schmoozing of the backbenches. Another remarked, however, the rebellion is small to minimal. People are moaning, but they will vote for it. Tory MPs said the tax increase was difficult to oppose because it was tied into extra spending on the NHS to cope with backlogs caused by the pandemic. On Tuesday night, Sir Christopher Chope, a senior Conservative MP, confirmed to The Telegraph that he would vote against the plans. It is understood that David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, is poised to abstain. Afghan soldiers trained by UK and US forces have defected to Taliban. Afghan soldiers who were trained by British and American forces have reportedly defected and are now fighting for the Taliban, UK Army sources revealed. British Army officers have analysed recent images of the Taliban using their weapons and they believe some of the fighters are using techniques they learned from the UK and US as well as NATO countries. A UK military source told The Times that they identified one Taliban fighter using a straight finger over a gun's trigger guard. The source said this indicates they were trained by Western forces as veteran members of Taliban hold their AK-47S randomly. The source said, this is the safety training we have adding that if they displayed these techniques then we know it's our guys. While there is no official confirmation that Afghan soldiers who were trained by the UK and US have switched sides, the military source said it is likely they defected to save themselves after Western countries withdrew from Afghanistan last month. The source said, everyone just flips sides. You flip sides so you know you won't get done in. It comes after the Taliban on Monday claimed victory in the Panjshir Valley, the last province holding out against it. Pictures on social media showed Taliban members standing in front of the Panjshir governor's compound after days of fighting with the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan, NRFA, commanded by Panjshiri leader Ahmed Massoud. Massoud denied that his force, 
consisting of remnants of the Afghan army as well as local militia fighters, was beaten, and tweeted that our resistance will continue. Meanwhile the Taliban's spokesman, Zabihullah Mujahid, has previously said that former forces that were trained and are professionals should be recruited to the Taliban. Another former military source who analyzed recent images told the newspaper, the new Taliban 2.0, as they are being called, is using the finger discipline. An untrained force would normally hold the weapon randomly, but if your hand is behind the pistol grip and your finger is over the trigger guard, then you're not going to have a negligent discharge and no one else is going to fire it either. But a defense source disagreed with the claim and said they believed any competent force would teach their soldiers how to handle their weapons in such a way. A Ministry of Defense spokesman said, We have no evidence to support reports that Western-trained former Afghan security forces have joined the Taliban. Barbara Kellerman, an intelligence analyst at security intelligence firm Dragonfly, said they had assessed reasonable probability some Afghan soldiers had defected and switched to the Taliban. She said, among reasons that would prompt some soldiers to join the Taliban are their previous ties to the group, economic incentives and even personal or familial safety if they perceived defeat for government forces was likely. Afghanistan is on the precipice of a humanitarian disaster three weeks after the fall of Kabul with furious protesters taking to the streets of the capital and locals unable to withdraw money from banks. The chaos comes as the Taliban announced a caretaker government, awarding top posts to veteran jihadists as it seeks to bring stability to Afghanistan. The announcement came amid another day of angry protests on the streets of Kabul, with Taliban fighters firing into the air to disperse crowds demanding rights for women, work and freedom and movement. Basic services have collapsed since the Taliban took power, people cannot withdraw money from banks and Western aid has been cut off. The Taliban's chief spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid held a press conference on Tuesday evening to announce UN-sanctioned Mohammad Hassan Hunt as their new leader. Taliban co-founder Abdul Ghani Baradar will serve as his deputy, Mullah Yaqub, son of the one-eyed late supreme leader Mullah Omar, was named defense minister, and Sirajuddin Haqqani, wanted by the FBI and the leader of the feared Haqqani network, was named interior minister. Walking 7,000 steps a day could cut risk of early death by 70%. Walking just 7,000 steps a day during middle age can slash the risk of death by up to 70%, according to a study. Researchers have discovered that the target less than the 10,000 steps often recommended is enough to protect against serious illnesses. A U.S. study of middle-aged adults found those who managed the goal the equivalent of walking around three miles, were much less likely to die over the next decade. It is further evidence that regular physical activity is one of the most important things for people to maintain a healthy life. A University of Massachusetts team analyzed 2,100 adults aged between 38 and 50. Participants wore a step count device for a year to track the average number of steps they took each day. Those who took less than 7,000 a day were classed as having a low step count, moderate was between 7,000 and 9,999, and above 10,000 a day was classed as high. The participants were followed up almost 11 years later. Results revealed adults who took 7,000 steps a day were between 50 and 70% less likely to be dead a decade later compared with those who took less than 7,000. And mortality rates in black and white participants fell by 63 and 70% respectively compared with their sedentary peers.
A gender difference was also identified deaths in men who took at least 7,000 steps a day fell by 58%, rising to 72% for women. But taking more than 10,000 a day was not associated with a further reduction in the risk of dying. Dr. Amanda Palich, lead author of the study in the JAMA Network Open Journal, said the results were irrespective of the speed at which people walked. She added, wearable patient monitoring systems are emerging as personalized medicine tools for the prevention and management of chronic conditions. Scientists also discovered there was a significantly greater proportion of women and black participants in the lowest step group. People who took fewer steps had a higher BMI, lower self-rated health and a higher prevalence of high blood pressure. The World Health Organization advises adults get at least 150 minutes of moderate-intensity physical activity or 75 minutes of vigorous physical activity on a weekly basis. Wearable health gadgets, made by firms such as Fitbit and Gomin, sell in their millions. The Mail yesterday reported that a study suggests setting your own targets is key for fitness. Researchers gave a step monitor to 500 people from low-income neighborhoods who were more at risk from heart attacks and strokes. Those given a daily target of 2,000 extra steps a day only managed 1,200 at best. But those told to set their own targets took up to 1,900 extra steps a day, according to the University of Pennsylvania study, in the journal JAMA Cardiology. Crop Circles, Cynical Hoax, Natural Phenomenon or Proof of Alien Life The sudden appearance of crop circles in fields across the British countryside every summer between April and September is one of our strangest seasonal spectacles. The subject of regular media excitement, they are often dismissed as an obvious hoax orchestrated by cunning rural chances, hoping to lure wide-eyed metropolitan tourists in order to charge them exorbitant rates of admission to witness what might, just might, be proof of an alien race seeking to make contact with intelligent life on our planet. Pranksters like Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley came to embody this image when they came forward in 1991 and sensationally claimed to have created hundreds of circles over the past 15 years by flattening down crops with wooden duckboards, measuring out their patterns with lengths of rope. As the Smithsonian Magazine explains, when the duo's circles first appeared, an efflorescence of mystical and magical thinking, Scientific and pseudoscientific research, conspiracy theories and general pandemonium broke out. The patterns stamped in fields were treated as a lens through which the initiated could witness the activity of earth energies and ancient spirits, the anguish of Mother Earth in the face of impending ecological doom, and evidence of secret weapons testing and, of course, aliens. Mr. Bauer though could not help but find the success of his flying saucer hoax hilarious. These so-called researchers, they connected our circles with burial mounds and ancient hillfoots. There's no connection at all. It's just that the field was good, as far as we were concerned, to have a bit of a laugh he told the BBC's Countryfile with a chuckle in 1999. But for others, known as croppies, 
such horseplay is just a distraction from a much more serious business, nothing less than compelling evidence of the paranormal in our time, the circle's ornate geometric designs, traced like runes through rows of corn, wheat and barley, simply too large and too intricate to be explained away with knee-jerk cynicism. In a recent BBC investigation of the phenomenon, Daniel Stables recounted a trip to Wiltshire, a county he says accounts for 80% of Britain's 30 crop circles every year, many occurring around the Neolithic sites of Stonehenge and Avebury, to see one for himself. Mr. Stables can only make out intersecting lines of trampled wheat from ground level, the shape resembling a rifle's crosshairs, but is swiftly disabused of the idea that the circle could be an extraterrestrial imprint when a fellow spectator, a pot-bellied man in a dark side of the moon t-shirt, points out that its pattern closely resembles the logo of the nearby barge in in Hunter Street, heavily implying that this particular example is man-made. While crop circles have been seen around the world, from California to China, Indonesia and Australia, interest in Britain grew steadily from the late 1970s, Mr. Bauer and Mr. Chorley made their first EN route home from the pub in 1976, note, until it exploded in the late 80s and ran throughout the 90s into the early 2000s. Notable examples from that time included the appearance of a mathematical fractal known as a Julia set near Stonehenge in 1996 and another in 2001 at nearby Milk Hill that is thought to be one of the largest ever at 900 foot across. It is surely no coincidence that M. Night Shyamalan's eerie blockbuster signs, starring Mel Gibson as a priest termed farmer perplexed by the appearance of the phenomenon in his Pennsylvania cornfields, appeared while this craze was at its height in 2002. Or, for that matter, that the X-Files and its conspiracy-minded catchphrase the truth is out there was at its zenith in the final years of the old millennium. But we, nine signs that you're falling in love, according to psychology. Falling in love is one of the strangest and most wonderful things a human being can experience. And while it's different for everyone, there are some common thoughts and feelings that can help people identify when it's happening. You might be experiencing one of the obvious indicators like not being able to think about anyone or anything else but that person or the signs could be more obfuscated. Whatever it may be. There's no doubt that falling in love in today's labyrinthine dating landscape is complicated. In a bid to simplify things a little, The Independent spoke to psychologists to identify some of the clear signs that you might be falling in love with someone. 1. You can't stop staring at them. It's a classic sign of infatuation, losing yourself in the eyes of the one you love. Consultant psychologist Mark Hexter explains that this is one of the most obvious signs that you're falling in love with someone. Why wouldn't you want to look into the eyes of someone who you experience as the most beautiful and attractive person in your world, he says. The thing is, when you look at someone you love, you don't just see what they look like. You might see your entire future together, or at least imagine what it could be. You are looking for something, says Hexter.
If you have ever seen a mother looking at their newborn baby, or looking at their child in a loving way, then you will recognize some of this constant staring at your love object. 2. You abandon your usual activities. If you're enjoying spending time with someone, the reward system in the brain increases your motivation to want more of that time, explains dating psychologist Madeleine Mason Rowntree. You start to crave their presence, she adds. You may start thinking of ways to be near them, too, which can include taking up their interests in the hope it could help strengthen the fledgling bond between you. For example, you may detest salsa, but find yourself enrolling on a salsa course, even if they are not on the course, because you feel closer to them by proxy explains Mason Rowntree. It also gives you something else you can talk to them about, and perhaps it's a way to entice them to get closer to you. 3. You don't mind when they do something unattractive. The power of love and new love, in particular, is primitive says Hexter. This means that when someone you're falling in love with does something you might perceive as unattractive, whether it's being untidy or leaving the toilet seat up, you won't mind. In fact, you might not even notice it. Love can be immensely powerful and can be associated with the loss of all inhibition adds Hexter. Think about parents who are in love with their baby and how they will acknowledge that they love their child no matter how dirty they are, or how much they stop them from sleeping. Four time flies when you're together. If you are falling in love with someone, chances are, your time with them will go by very quickly, explains chartered psychologist Daria Kuss. This is often the case when we're doing something we enjoy and spending time with someone we're falling in love with is no different. You are in the flow when you are with them she adds, so you won't notice the ticking clock when you spend time together. 5. They can do no wrong. Falling in love can warp your sense of reality a little says Hexter. It is likely that if you feel deeply in love with someone, then you will have a somewhat unrealistic view who they are and how they present themselves he adds. So whilst you might be inclined to be critical of someone else doing or saying something, if your partner does or says them, you might love them for it, because in your eyes, they can do no wrong. Even if they are wearing sandals with socks. It's what makes them so beautiful, right, he adds. When you are a complete guide to being your most stylish self. The past year or so has proven to be a very unique period of time for everybody. Much of our lives from where we work and how we holiday to who we can see and what we're permitted to do has changed enormously. Within this, less importantly but just as drastically, our approach to what we wear each day has also faced a transformation. Whether you've been living in your lounge or have been online shopping more than ever before, there have been plenty of changes in our approach to fashion this year. But, one positive of having more time at home on our hands is that we have had an opportunity to evaluate what we really need in our wardrobes and, now that we are easing back into normal life, we can figure out what should stay and what should go. From holding on to old clothes that never get worn to panic buying pieces that won't have more than one outing, 
we are all guilty of making less than sensible decisions when it comes to our wardrobes. But, it doesn't have to be that way. Here, we break down 15 wardrobe resolutions to undertake now so that you can make space, save money and look the best you ever have. 1. Don't buy something for just one occasion. We're all guilty of it. A wedding, a Christmas party, a Friday night reunion in the pub with your friends. Heading somewhere exciting means we inevitably feel like we need something special and therefore something new to wear. However, more often than not, as much as we like the piece that we buy, it rarely gets more than one outing. Instead of purchasing something specific for certain events, try to have a few dressier pieces in your wardrobe that are more versatile. If you go for something simple and more classic, rather than trend-led, you'll be able to wear it again and again. Accessorized cleverly, it will never feel like the same look. 2. Don't buy or keep something that doesn't fit. It's not uncommon to hold on to items that no longer fit you in the hope that they will again one day. It's also not uncommon to buy something in a size too small as an incentive to lose weight or because it's in the sale and they don't have your usual size. However, holding on to these items that you can't physically wear is one of the worst things you can do if you're trying to reduce the size of your wardrobe. Be realistic and honest with yourself. If it doesn't fit you, it's time to sell or donate it. 3. Don't buy or keep something that doesn't suit you. As well as holding on to things that don't fit, many of us keep pieces that we know don't suit us. Often we've bought something on a whim because it's a big trend or because we saw someone else wearing it and thought they looked amazing but because it just doesn't suit us, we've never actually taken it out of the cupboard. If a piece of clothing doesn't make you feel confident and comfortable, it has no place in your life. 4. Don't buy something just because it's a bargain. It's easy to be won over by a big discount, and you should make the most of huge markdowns especially when it comes to investment designer pieces but only if that piece is something that you really need to add to your arsenal. Never buy something just because it's a great deal. No matter how affordable it was, if you never wear it, it's a complete waste of money. 5. When you buy something, get rid of something else. An excellent way to keep your wardrobe at a sensible size is to adopt the one-in, one-out policy. Every time you add something new, take a piece out, and sell it or donate it to charity. Not only will it keep your rails and shelves from overflowing, it also means you have to be much more confident about what you are purchasing. You'll never buy something unless you completely love it, knowing that you are going to have to lose something special from your wardrobe. 6. Clothes swap with your most stylish f- Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. We are asking for your support.
You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.